You're listening to online media from Glendale Christian Church. For more information, visit us at glendalecc.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at glendalecky. Well, good morning. Hey, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for joining us online. To those of you who are watching online, and as Bobby and Tim have both mentioned uh, about camp and mission trip, and I just want to say real quickly to our leaders that were on our mission trip, thank you for pouring and investing in the next generation of, uh, of church leaders. Thanks for loving on our students for, for a few uh, days. And, and really just thanks for walking and serving with them, not just talking about how to be the hands and feet, but actually showing them and being the hands and feet of Jesus with them. Uh, I'm so grateful that we have those kind of people in our church. Um, as Tim mentioned, there were several of us that were at camp, and uh, so myself and Tim and Aaron Gibson, they were at camp. They did a great job leading us in worship all week. Uh, Sam Bell and Brent Hostclaw were also part of our camp team, and they did a great job, and I was really just super impressed with them and so proud of them because I'll tell you, we had a great group of kids at camp. We had about 70 high school campers, and they were a really good group of kids. We had a subset within that group. About eight or nine that made camp life really difficult, uh, that made it a very long week uh, for some of us. And, and most of those all happened to be in Sam and Brent's group. And so they, they did a really good job of navigating uh, through some of those issues that came up. But uh, I, for me, camp was really kind of an eye-opening experience for me this year. Uh, I've been a part of camp teams and camp staff for for 20 plus years. I did a children's and student ministry for over 15 years before I came here to be the lead minister. But, but I've been out of that circle now for, for almost four years. And so, um, so some of the things that, took pla- that take place in student ministry were kind of just the culture of that ministry has changed. Um, when, when I was in student ministry and children's ministry, I saw some of those changes taking place. But, but you could see it as a progression and happening over, over the course of time. This week at camp was such a, a different culture. And, and please don't hear what I'm please please don't hear me saying that I, we had bad kids because we did not have bad students. We had we had really good kids there this week. But it was such a different culture than, than what I've been used to. And we dealt with issues that, as a camp staff that I've never dealt with before at camp. And, and really it was a reflection of our culture. It was much difficult for our faculty, for our adults to, to navigate those situations than it was for our students. Our students, it was, it was second nature to them because it was what they see every day. It was what they go to school with every day. It, it, was, it was what they have grown up in. It was the culture in which they live. But for the adults, I mean, for some of us, we're going, it's been 20 years since I've been in high school or more. Um, there was a realization for me when I was introducing the camp staff. So I was the dean for this weekend. I was introducing all my camp staff. And I'm used to being the young guy in all of my circles of friends. And as I was introducing them, there was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm the old guy now. <laughs> I think we had, I, Brent was, Brent Holsklaw, was, he was one of the few that were older than me. I think there were two other guys out there that were older than me this weekend. That was kind of a, a humbling moment as well. <laughs> but uh, but it really, that, that this week it, it it caused me to rethink maybe how we as a church engage culture. 
Um, we've been talking about for the last couple weeks, mission and vision. We've been in this sermon series called Focus. And, and in week one of this series, we talked about the mission that Jesus has given us individually to go and to follow him, right? That was the individual mandate. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we said when we do that as individuals, we gather collectively and we become the church. And Jesus gave a mandate to the church as well to go and make disciples, right? So the first command is to come and the second command is to go. And that's the mission of the church. And last Last week we talked about some of the vision of how we accomplish that within ourselves. But if we're always just engaging ourselves, then what do we have at the end of the day? We have a group of Christians who have been saved and are coming to church to continue to be saved. And that's great, but at some point we got we got to start to bring other people with us, right? At some point we can't be satisfied with just us. We, we got to begin to, to expand and to engage our culture. And so how does the church engage a world that is very anti-Christian or the, a culture that is not a Christian culture? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Because there's a significant event that takes place in Acts chapter 7. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this passage of scripture, but I want to come back to this passage of scripture. Because in Acts chapter 7, there marks a trend in church history that unfortunately continues to this day. It's persecution. In in this text, we've got Stephen, the the first Christian martyr. He meets his death, and and we're introduced to Stephen a chapter before in Acts chapter 6. If you'll remember back then, in, in the early part of the church, this first century, the church is just taking off, it's starting to grow, and, and there's an issue with the widows. The widows aren't being cared for like, like they need to be cared for. But the apostles, uh, they don't have time to really, to really do this because they're out busy preaching the word and they're doing all this other stuff. And so they get together and they say, you know what, we're going to set aside a group of men for the purpose of ministry, for the purpose of this ministry of taking care of these widows. And Stephen is among that group. We would call this group the first deacons in the church. And Stephen is one of those, and he's described in in the book of Acts as a man that was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, as a man full of God's grace and power. But like what happens when most people who are full of grace and full of God's power, there will always be those who oppose them, right? There will always be those because of the enemy that wants to to bring them down. And so so a group of, of men... Uh, gathered and ultimately arranged to have him arrested. And they they get him arrested on some trumped-up charges. And during his trial, Stephen spoke about the history of Israel and how God had worked through through his people throughout history. And he concluded his message by telling them that about Jesus, saying to these religious men that they were the ones responsible for the death of Jesus, that they had put him to death, they had they had killed God's chosen Messiah. And his words infuriated the men. And so they dragged him out into the street and then out into the city and they stoned him to death. Now today in America, and thankfully in most of the world, it's difficult for us to imagine that level of persecution. I've never been dragged out of a city, or dragged out of a church for that matter, after preaching a message and being threatened to be stoned to death. In fact, I've never had really anything bad like that ever happen to me. Um... So it's hard for us to imagine that kind of persecution because we just don't experience it. Now from time to time there are some alarmists who, who will sound the bell uh, that America is being persecuted, that the church is being persecuted. There was one example I read about where a church was having a, a difficult time getting a zoning permit for their new building that they were building. And they were saying that they were being persecuted by the city council. And I'm just going to say that's not, that's not 
persecution, all right? It's civil, gover- it's civil government. It's civil obedience. You've got to do what you've got to do. You've got to make sure if you're going to do that, you've got to get the right permits. We, we all understand that. And, and so when we hear those kind of stories and people use that as persecution, it really diminishes the plight of those who are in foreign countries who really are being persecuted. I mean, there are, there are countries where, where being a Christian is illegal, where underground church, underground worship is necessary. There, there are people being put to death for simply owning a Bible. And so the Christian church, the, the American church, is not being persecuted, not like what other places are experiencing. The American church, however, ex- is experiencing something that, uh, that the early church experienced. So the difference is, though, the American church, or excuse me, the early church started in a society that was non-Christian, but increasingly became Christian over time. The American church is just the opposite of that. We're, we're a society that started as a Christian culture, but over time we are becoming increasingly non-Christian. And so both of us are, have, are living in non-Christian societies. Frankly, as a, the American church, we're just losing our voice. The American church is losing, losing its voice. Fewer people attend church today now than they did 10 years ago. In fact, fewer people attend church now than they did 15 months ago. In spite of all the... the Seeker sensitive and and try and ways that the church is trying to engage those who are, who are lost. Fewer people come to church now than ever before in our history. We see an increasingly non Christian point of view presented in the media and in public policy. And I don't have to tell you that you know that's true. Just listen to the news. You'll you'll hear a very anti Christian agenda proclaimed, and that should be a cause for concern for each of us. But I also say that I think our concern should be directed inward. Instead of demanding that society change to serve us, we should be asking ourselves, how can we better serve society? What can we do to better serve society? What can we do to make this world, this nation, this community a better place to live? What do we need to do in order to have more influence here within our community and to better impact the world around us? And so this morning, we're going to continue to look at the mission and the vision of the church. And and our mission is simple. We want to change the world, right? We want to change the world by changing lives. We want to make it a better place to live. We want to help people experience the abundant life that Jesus offers to them, not just now, but for all of eternity. We want to help people to, we want to lead people to love and to follow Jesus. That's the mission statement of Glendale Christian Church, to lead people to love and follow Jesus. And we need to know this, you need to know this. Our strategy, our strategy for how to do that, to how to lead people to love and follow Jesus, it's not political. It's not. It's not economic. It's spiritual. The, this message doesn't just work in Glendale, Kentucky, or any, in any other suburb across America. This, is, this message works in the slums of Rio de Janeiro. It works in the villages of Thailand, in the streets of St. Petersburg. Anywhere, anybody, anywhere can experience the fullness of life in Christ if we will just take the message to them. And American... American Christians have to remember this. Our message is not political. It's not political. It's it's spiritual. Our mission is to change the world by changing lives. And we can do this even though we live in a world, in a a society, in a culture that doesn't fully endorse the message. And by the way, one reason our society doesn't fully endorse our message is because our society doesn't fully understand our message. And we're partially to blame for this. In fact, I'll say maybe we're mostly to blame for this. Because the church, the church universal, the American church especially though, has talked about politics and behavioral issues and economic matters as if that's what we're all about. 
Someone outside the church equates being a Christian with being a Republican, which I think is funny because I don't think Jesus would have voted Republican or Democrat. I think there's flaws with both sides, all right? Some outside the church equate being a Christian as being anti-gay or anti-abortion and on and on and on in whatever anti-societal issue we've got. And do we have a stance on those issues? Sure we do. In fact, you, you better believe we've got a stance on those issues. But those issues, those issues do not define us. When you, when you look at the writings and the teachings of the early church leaders, especially the book of Acts, you see that they didn't talk a great deal about social issues. You know what they talked about? They talked about Jesus. They talked about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. The topic of, of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost is that Jesus Christ is risen from the Lord, is risen from the ground, and he is Lord of all. In Acts chapter 3, the topic of Peter's sermon is that Jesus Christ is risen and Lord of all. In Acts chapter 4, we read after Peter and John had, had been arrested for, for preaching a message. You know what message they were preaching? That Jesus Christ was risen and Lord of all. In Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, his sermon before the court, and he outlines the course of Israel's history, and he concludes with a proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the early church talked about. They talked about Jesus and his resurrection, that he was Lord. And our message today needs to be the same as theirs. We can talk about other things, sure, but those other things should not define us. What should define us is that we are people who proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, that He is Lord of all. Our mission is to help people make a life-changing connection with Jesus, to lead people to love and follow Him. And so to help us do that, I want us to look at the last part of Stephen's sermon. I want us to make some observations that will, that will help us discover who we are and what we're called to do. And so let's talk about his message at first. Uh, he ended his sermon, Stephen, he, he gives this discourse, and at the end of it, he ends with some pretty harsh words. If you look at 50, verses 51 and 52 of chapter 7, this is what Stephen says. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's pretty harsh there, isn't it? Stephen says to these people, you have betrayed and murdered him. In fact, maybe harsh is a little bit of an understatement. But Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is equally hard-hitting. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he said, Therefore let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Acts 3, Peter says something similar. He says, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. In Acts 4, after healing the man at the temple gate, Peter said this. He said, Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, but God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. In Acts chapter 5, Peter said, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And then we get to Acts chapter 6 and 7, and Stephen continues that message, that you are responsible for the death of Jesus, that God's chosen Messiah, it was you who put him on that tree. Those are harsh words, aren't they? But I want you to keep in mind who those harsh words were directed at. Peter and Stephen, they were speaking to their own people, their, their own brothers and sisters, their own fellow church members, so to speak. 
Because remember, at this point in, in, the, in the church movement, it wasn't clear that yet that Christianity was going to be a separate religion from Judaism. It was considered by the apostles just to be the next step in Judaism. And so when Peter and John and Stephen, when they speak such strong words, they were speaking to their brothers. They weren't attacking those on the outside. They, they weren't preaching about the sinfulness of the Greeks and the Romans. They, they were denouncing the hard-heartedness of their own people to their own people. I think the correlation for us is pretty obvious today. That we need to save our hardest hitting messages, our hardest hitting sermons, for ourselves. Jesus, Jesus had something similar to say about that too, right? He said, before you go and remove the speck from your brother's eye, take care of the plank in your own, right? Unfortunately, that's not the reputation that we have. Society, for the most part, sees the church as being quite smug and, and self-satisfied while we point our fingers at all that is wrong with the rest of the world. There are those who would contend that, that we judge everybody but ourselves. We need to make sure that that perception is not true. Can we have opinions about sin? Sure, we, we ought to. But, but let me be clear about this. Our job is not to judge those on the outside. God will take care of that. God's a big enough God that he can handle the sin that's on the outside, that's in the rest of the world. I mean, he's been, he's been dealing that with that since the beginning of time, right? He's a big enough God, he can handle that. Our job is not to, to, worry, to, to judge that sin. So we need to stop judging the world and maybe instead start judging ourselves. Peter wrote in his, in his letter to the church, for it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. If we really if we really want to make a difference in the world, if we really want to be a church that can engage culture, then first, we need to make sure that we're not pointing the finger at them with three pointing back at us, right? We need to make sure that we've got our own act together. We also need to remember that just because the message doesn't get the desired response that we want, that we don't change the message. Uh, we, we don't change the message to, to, to get a, a specific response. We preach the same message. Um, and, but I'll tell you, this is probably one of the greatest misconceptions that people in the church have uh, when, when anything about a church changes. That when, when, somebody, when, when a church goes through any kind of change and they change something about a service, uh, one of the most common things is, well, well, here we go again. We're drifting away from the gospel. We're moving away. No, no, no. We're just changing the order of service a little bit. We're, we're singing songs in a different spot. We're not changing the message. We're, we're, we're just changing the method. And that's okay because I'm telling you, methods have to adopt with culture. What, what they did in the first century church would not work in the 21st century. And what we do in the 21st century would not have worked in the first century. As culture changes, the methods have to change along with it. But I'm telling you, the message never changes. The message stays the same. The message was the same for Peter and, and, and John and Stephen, and the message is the same for us. And here's the message. It's found in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no under name under heaven given to men which we must be saved by. That's the message. That's always the message. Jesus is always the message. We never change that message. When the church tries to soften that message to accommodate the whims of culture or, or, or modern culture, we become weak and ineffective. Our challenge is to remain faithful to the message, even when we don't get the response that we want. And listen, I'll tell you, at camp this week, um, had, I, had I been ready for some of the cultural uh, shocks that I was going to experience, we would, we would have changed our, our method. But the message... The message was going to stay the same. But I can tell you, some people, some of our campers received the message well. Some didn't. 
And that's the way it is for us as we, as we share the message with those outside of the church. Some will receive it well, but some won't. And let me tell you, there's, that's nothing new. It's been like that. It was like that in the early church. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that it says when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It means they were convicted. They were convicted of what he'd been saying. The Holy Spirit was convicting them of their sins. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, they interrupted a sermon and they said, Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, how do we get right with God? When Stephen preached a similar message, the Bible says that when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Same message, different response. We don't change the message regardless of the response we get. We continue to preach Christ and Him crucified and salvation through Him and faith alone. And when the crowd became furious at Stephen's word, he continued with that same message. He went on to say, in effect, I see Jesus standing next to the throne of God. In other words, he said, I'll say it even louder for those in the back. Jesus is Lord of all. And that's always the message. And sometimes the response is good and sometimes it's not. But ultimately, when we proclaim that that's the message, what, what the hearer does with that is ultimately up to them. For, for Stephen, his response became even worse. Take a look at what happened next, verses 57 and 58. It said, At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him and dragged him out, by the, out of the city, and they began to stone him. Like I said, I've never been dragged out of the city by a hostile crowd, but I have seen a number of people cover their ears, so to speak. Refused to hear the word of God. I saw it this week. I've known a number of people who, who when confronted with their sin, start, start yelling at the top of their voices. Look, we don't always get the response we want, but we must remain faithful to the message regardless. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans? He said, how will people ever hear if it's not for, for people taking the message to them? When, when people get to, to the judgment seat of, of heaven, when they stand before God in His judgment, You know what excuse they should never be able to give for why they they rejected him? Ignorance. There should never be anybody that gets to heaven and pleads ignorance that that they didn't know. You know why? Because we should be proclaiming the message that Jesus is risen, that he is Lord of all to anybody and everybody. I hope that there's never never a person that we know in our own lives that when, when they die we think about, well, I wonder if they knew Jesus. I hope that they never think that. I hope we never think that. You know why? Because we've, we've told them about Jesus. What they do with Jesus, is on their, is, that's their responsibility. That's their decision. But it's our responsibility to make sure that they know. I also want you to notice verse 58. Verse 58, there's a detail in here that I love. It says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I love this little detail because Saul, who later becomes Paul, the the Apostle Paul, the champion of Christianity, the one who wrote so much of the New Testament, he was there that day in the crowd when Stephen was being stoned to death, when he was being put to death. And at that moment, Saul was a pretty well-known Pharisee, and and no one at that moment could see the the potential of this young man. To To the church there in Jerusalem, to the other Christians, to the other followers of Christ, this man was just another one of the quote unquote bad guys. When Chuck Colson went to prison in the early 70s, no one could have guessed his potential either. He was one of the bad guys. He was one of the reasons why our government was so corrupt. But while in prison, Chuck Colson met a person named Jesus. And his life was transformed. 
and he became one of the good guys. In fact, his ministry did more for prison reform than, than any other ministry in, in our country. If you've never read his book, How Now Shall We Live?, I would encourage you to pick it up because it is a transformational book. He became one of the most influential Christians of our day. But that's not how anybody first saw Chuck Colson when he came into public light. He was one of the bad guys. But we must remember that there might be a few Sauls in the crowd. I've heard Christians speak so disparagingly, and I'll be honest, I'm probably guilty of this as well, of, of non-Christians, of certain non-Christians, that, I, that I'm afraid that we might have eliminated any chance that that person will ever give serious consideration to the faith because they've been so alienated by Christians. We need to remember that when we face our toughest critics, that there might be a few Sauls in the crowd. We, we tend to have this, this worldview of, of us versus them, and that's unfortunate, but, but that is, it's prevalent in all of American culture. It's us versus them, whether because we're a competitive culture in, in sports or in business or, or in politics or, or in church. It's always us versus them, but we need to remember that many of us used to be one of them, and hopefully many of them will eventually be one of us. So let's keep, in mind, keep that in mind when we consider who the bad guys are. If we're ever going to engage culture, then we can't write people off. We can't alienate them so much that they never give us a chance. We've got to engage them where they're at. Finally, I want to I wrap up our time this morning by looking at verse 60. If you look at verse 60, uh, Stephen say, it says this about Stephen. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. I'll, I'll be blunt, but at the, and at the risk of sounding disrespectful toward a, a dying man's final wish, whether or not God holds that sin uh, against those people is not Stephen's call to make. It wasn't his call to make. God's law is not like the American legal system where we get the choice to, to press charges or not press charges. Uh, but, but Stephen's prayer, it, it's a good prayer, and it sounds very similar to the prayer that Jesus prayed, right? When he was being uh, crucified, here's what Jesus prayed in Luke 23. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. You know, I think Stephen's prayer and, and Jesus' prayer even, I think they were spoken and prayed out loud for the benefit of the church. For, for the benefit of those who witnessed that event. Even though earlier Stephen had spoke the truth with such force that it resulted in his death, his dying words were words of mercy and forgiveness. His final message was one of, of reconciliation, of forgiveness. Let me, let me say this. We need to stand for truth. And please don't leave here today thinking that Adam wants us to be soft on truth because we're not to judge others and that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. We, we need to stand for truth. We need to be firm on truth. But it's not necessary for us to have an adversarial relationship with those who are not on our side, for those who oppose us. To, to treat non-Christians, e even those who would wish to do us harm, to treat them with gentleness and respect, does not in any way compromise our stance on truth, our commitment to truth. It just doesn't. We, we don't have to be enemies with those with whom we disagree with. 
In fact, we should do everything we can to make sure that those people that we disagree with know that we're not interested in pursuing a battle with them. What we're interested in is pursuing a relationship with them. We've got to get this mindset out of our, out of our heads, out of our church thinking, out of our individual thinking that the people on the outside of these walls are our enemies. There is an enemy, and his name is Satan. And, and Jesus was pretty pretty clear about what his goal was he he, he roams around like a thief in the night right to steal kill and destroy that's the purpose of 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 satan and that's the enemy but people people are not the enemy you know what they are they are potential brothers and sisters in christ if we will pursue a relationship with them instead of viewing them as the enemy some christians will object to that and i get it They will say things like, if we don't stand up for ourselves and fight for our rights, then we'll just get taken advantage of. Yeah, of course we will. And I don't know where we ever got this idea that it would be any other way. Jesus said, no, a servant's not greater than the master. And because they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He prepared us for, for times like this when he said, if you're struck on the right cheek, turn to them the other as well, right? I don't know where we ever got this idea that, that we, were, we wouldn't be taken advantage of. But we're Americans, so we like our rights. I got the right to do this, and I got the right to do that, and you can't take my rights away, right? That, that's, but I'm just going to tell you that thinking has in, been ingrained in the American church. And let me just tell you that when we made a commitment to Christ, we gave up our rights. Our commitment is, our, being a Christian is about following Him, surrendering to Him, becoming a slave to Him, and the slave doesn't have any rights. We gave up our rights so that we might follow Jesus. Just like Jesus did with those who were his enemies, just like Stephen did with those who murdered him, we need to be able to extend the hand of reconciliation and forgiveness to the world around us. We need to make sure that the world understands our message, that you are not my enemy, even when we disagree. Even if you attack me, I'm going to offer you my hand, because I want you to be my brother. I want you to be my sister. If we're ever going to engage culture, if we're ever going to transform culture, not just engage, because I'm not satisfied with engaging culture, and I hope that you're not either. We need to transform culture. If we're ever going to transform the culture, we have to be on mission. The mission of the church is to change the world by changing lives, not by creating change with political policy or economic muscle, but with simple acts of love and mercy. Our job is not to judge those on the outside. Our job is to judge ourselves and to love those on the outside. We don't need to condemn them. We need to tell them about Jesus because there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. If we want the church to be that kind of church, if we want the church to have that kind of influence, then we need to get in the habit of lifting up the name of Jesus above all other names because it is only about Him. It is not about any of the other things that we tend to make church about or culture about. It is only about Him. And our goal is to be a church that loves one another, that loves others, that loves Jesus and lifts His name above all other names to lead people to love and follow Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love You. And we are so thankful for the grace and the and the mercy that we find in you. 
And Father, as we look around our culture, our society, we see a world that's lost. A world that's dying. Father, help us to not be satisfied to just simply sit on the side and watch. But give us the boldness and the courage, the conviction to begin to engage with the culture so that the culture might be transformed by the incredible power of your son Jesus. Father, every day that we live, every moment that we, we breathe, we become one moment closer to the return of Jesus. So Father, press that, that upon us. Give us a renewed sense of urgency to, to engage with culture because there's a world around us that is dying and Father, you have made us plan A. You've made us plan A. There is no plan B for the world to hear about Jesus other than through, through your church, through the foolishness of preaching. Father, may we be a church that proclaims the name of Jesus, that he is Lord of all. May we do that in this building and everywhere that we go from this building, in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Father, we want to lead people to love and follow you so that they can in turn lead people to love and follow you, so that they can in turn lead people to love and follow you, and just on and on and on. But it starts with us. So Father, give us a, that renewed sense of urgency, that conviction, that, that, that spirit of boldness to do so. To be the church that you've called us to be, that, that loves people and loves Jesus. It's in the incredibly powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.